Welcome to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams. Parkland parents urge Utah lawmakers to pass school safety legislation, how Utah Republicans are trying to influence an active Supreme Court case, and nine Venezuelan family members landed at the Salt Lake City Airport with nowhere to go. They recount their journey. Joining me today are Salt Lake Tribune education reporter Michael Lee. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, State Watch reporter Emily Anderson-Stern is with us. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. And uh, Westside Communities reporter Jose Davila IV is with us. Hi, Tom. Thanks so much. Hi. Thanks for joining us. When we get to your segment a little later in the program, we'll have you uh, tell us about yourself since you're uh, new to the Tribune. And uh, Robert Gerke, news columnist, uh, is usually providing uh, commentary for us. He's not able to join us uh, today, so uh, we'll look forward to having him on again next week. Um, so, Michael Lee, uh, let's uh, start with you. Uh, the headline, you can't teach dead kids. Parkland parents urge Utah lawmakers to pass school safety legislation. So we'll get into talking about this. Uh, a couple of Parkland parents uh, came in and talked to the legislature. But uh, the first sentence of your story, Michael, um, is something of a bombshell. The safety officials uh, told us, I guess, during this, this hearing or these ongoing uh, proceedings, that three times this academic year, Utah authorities were able to intervene in cases of significant cases of public safety. Tell us about this. Yeah, we don't entirely know uh, too much about what exactly happened. We, uh, me and a couple, a couple of reporters, um, and I, you know, approached uh, Commissioner Jess Anderson after the news conference, and um, you know, tried to get some more details about some of the cases, but you know, we're we're kind of denied information. You know, uh, as a lot of us, uh, all of them are ongoing investigations, and as you mentioned, you know, the last one happened at you know. At, at the end of January is is all you know we were told, but you know this was this was kind of a conference talking a lot about you know how some of this legislation or you know why some of this le- legislation uh, is being discussed and you know um, you moving moving through the legislature um, and and so to to prevent incidents like those three major cases. And um, the commissioner. Uh... Jess Anderson, uh, he said in, in each of these three cases, they uh, were able to use information on somebody who saw something, said something. So apparently somebody came forward in each of these cases. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, they a lot of these because uh, they, they've had a, a couple of these um, press conferences regarding school safety legislation, um, you know, starting from even last summer. And, you know, they, they talked a lot about the the tip systems that. Um, you know, the state uses, including uh, Safe UT, um, which um, has, yeah, again, has been kind of discussed a lot. But yeah, so it's it's one of those things where he kind of has encouraged, you know, like he, like you've said, um, to for people to continue to do so, um, and and that's that's exactly what will help the state to um, continue to prevent these kinds of situations from even showing up in the first place. So in the headline, I said Parkland, and we use that as kind of a, a shorthand, but remind us what happened in Parkland, Florida. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, you know, in 2018, on Valentine's Day, um, 14 students and three staff members uh, at Marjorie Stone Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, um, died in a school shooting. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the way that this is kind of related to what we're talking about now, right? Um, is uh, last October, um, there was a visit 
uh, I think it was organized by uh, uh, Max Schachter, actually, who was one of the parents who spoke at this press conference um, and this week. And um, he organized a visit, essentially, for Utah lawmakers, officials, uh, school safety officials, and other administrators to go down to Parkland, visit the school, because um, it's it's set to be demolished this summer. But um, from my understanding and from you know previous reporting from uh, my colleague Carmen, the and and the AP as well, uh, the building is pretty uh, pretty untouched. Um, so, you know, a lot of what happened there is still in the school. And so, um, like I mentioned, kind of this discussion stemmed from that visit. Um, you know, they invited the uh, two parents uh, up to talk to the media. They've spoken during the legislative session as well, um, during public comment and, and kind of just advocating for a lot of this school safety, uh, these school safety measures that these uh, Utah lawmakers are proposing. Uh, some of those who participated in that tour uh, said it was quite impactful. Uh, blood stains in the hallways, shoes left in classrooms. I guess the the building was just uh, kind of left intact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and uh, you know they've they've mentioned as well. Uh, you know, uh, Representative Wilcox has mentioned that a lot of what the uh, school safety amendments or these bills related to school safety have stemmed from that visit, right? And and one one example is um, one of the parents who came to spoke, um, Lori Alhadef, um, you know, she's been kind of advocating across the nation in different states for something called Alyssa's Law, which is, you know, uh, requiring all schools to have a panic button, right, that they can press, you know, law enforcement or emergency services will be able to respond immediately if the, that button is pressed in a school. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and that's in uh, House Bill 84, uh, the school safety amendments, um, along with obviously a lot of other uh, a, a, a lot of other measures that are, are being um, discussed, yeah. Uh, tell us about some of those measures, maybe starting with Representative Wilcox. He's proposing a school guardian. What would this be? Yeah, so, uh, you know, last summer I kind of reported on sort of the start of this, and um, essentially the bill would allow for a designated school employee, and this is an employee that is not, in the classroom is specifically mentioned in the bill. This is not a teacher or a principal. Uh, I think if if I remember correctly, um, it's basically uh, it's a person who they don't directly deal with like teaching or you know, again being in the classroom. Um, but that school employee will be able to be armed armed and trained to respond to emergency situations essentially. Representative Wilcox uh, noted uh, we've gotten lucky so far. I don't know how long we can be lucky. Um, so these are some of the measures, I guess. Uh, he's proposing uh, something. Is is, is somebody uh, sponsoring um, uh, so something that would enact Alyssa's law? So uh, that that is actually in that uh, in Wilcox's. Bill, oh, that's actually. in Wilcox's. Yeah, bill. that's okay. inside Wilcox's mm. bill. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Utah State Superintendent of Public Education, Cindy Dixon, uh, made some comments. What, uh, what was she saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, she she had mentioned um, this was soon after the Parkland shooting, I think um, sometime in March, from my understanding. Um, you know, there were uh, obviously long before my time at the Tribune, but um, 
I had read up a little bit, there were a bunch of uh, rallies, um, you know, a, a lot of students who were protesting uh, or who were advocating for more gun control laws um, throughout Salt Lake City. Uh, and, you know, she had talked about how she had walked with some of those students. And, you know, and, and this is something not just... Uh, Personally, for me, you know, through working on the Ed Beat, you know, that's not just something I've heard here happening, but, you know, a lot of students that they'll talk about nowadays when they go into a school or when they walk into a room in general, you know, or their classroom, they they sort of, you know, look for the safest place in the room, which is what uh, Sydney Dixon was saying. And she was telling the media um, that the students were telling her. And so, um, you know, she specifically, you know, she we, she's quoted saying, you know, we've learned a lot since then. Unfortunately, we've learned it through tragedy, right? Um, just due to the fact that, you know, more and more shootings are happening around the country. Then you cite a survey, 41% uh, of students statewide uh, who participate in the survey are consumed about uh, gun violence or active shooter situations in the schools. Uh, that, mm. That's very impactful. The the fact that some of those students are looking for the safest place in the room that's on their minds. Yeah, for sure. And um, on a side note, you know, this, this was a survey um, that it's called the sharp survey, which um, is a voluntary survey that there's, there's actually another bill to uh, prevent schools from requiring uh, non-academic related surveys. Uh, however, just for context, this is a voluntary survey regardless. Um, but yeah, no, that that is one of the stati many statistics that they've reported um, regarding school safety um, in, inside that survey, yeah. Here's another couple of statistics really jumped out at me from your story, Michael. Um, more than 121 documented violent threats in Utah schools, that's since August, and uh, more than 60 lockdowns initiated in the state. Mm hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, they there there are definitely a couple of other um, bills that are being proposed as well. Um, I'm trying to remember the bill number exactly, but uh, another one of Wilcox's sponsored bills. And, and he talked about this again last summer as well, where, um, you know, because they have see been seeing, you know, spikes or at least a large number of threats. Right. Um, in in schools across the state, um, you know, some being more severe threats than others, um, that there he he has proposed also a uh, bill that would make hoax threats a second degree felony, which um, is I think punishable up to ten thousand dollars and many years in in prison. Um, so. Yeah, I think, you know, his his focus, specifically the session, and he's kind of self-admitted this himself, where he he feels like um, his, his job this session has been right to to propose to do these to work on these school safety related bills. And that's kind of just been his, you know, uh, a lot of what he's talked about so far as well. You also mentioned the story, uh, Representative Tim Jimenez, uh, House Bill 119, which would reimburse teachers to install gun safes in their classrooms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was uh, that was a story reported by, um, again, my colleague Carmen. Um, but yeah, that would, um, again, like you mentioned, right, have allowed teachers who are armed, you know, who do uh, have firearm firearms to be able to store those in the classroom and actually inside house bill 84 as well this is also um there's also a, from my understanding from um a 500 dollars incentive for school guardians to do the same as well hmm. um yeah 
Um, what did the uh, what did the Parkland parents uh, say? What, to, what were some of their specific comments as they appeared at the at this event? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the biggest one, right, and, and it's in the headline of our story, right, where it's um, you know you mentioned earlier uh, that. Uh, one of the you know, state officials have been saying, you know, we've been lucky, right? Uh, Wilcox said, we, we're, we're, we've been lucky. And then that's essentially what, um, you know, one of the parents was, was talking about is, you know, the reason why lawmakers should pass these school safety amendments is, is the fact that even though tragedy hasn't exactly struck Utah yet, um, at least, you know, um, in, in recent years that, um, th- that these, these, proposals, these bills are important to just prevent from that from even happening in the first place. Uh, yeah. Well, thanks for telling us about this. Um, the uh, School safety. Uh, we're, we're talking with uh, Salt Lake Tribune education reporter Marco Lee. We have just a little bit of time here. I want to have you talk about another story uh, published recently um, and uh, comments from the Salt Lake City School Board on uh, the the new law, which has been signed uh, into law by Utah Governor Spencer Cox, that bans diversity, equity, and inclusion programs in public education systems across the state, including K through 12. So, what did uh, Salt Lake City school board members have to say about this? Yeah, uh, I think um, the the most critical board member of the bill was Mohammed Baid, uh, who you know has just in general talked about. Uh, at many board meetings about, you know, ha- keeping the district inclusive to students, you know, making sure that, um, you know, equity is kind of uh, present throughout uh, everything that the district does. And so, um, you know, one of he, he was very critical of this bill. Um, again, you know, I think talking to uh, hearing what a lot of districts have said and, um, you know, talking to other schools as well. You, they don't exactly know, right, at this current moment, how the how the bill will specifically affect the school. I think it's going, you know, they've mentioned how it's going to take time, right, uh, for for them to determine uh, the, the 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 major effects, right, what offices it'll affect, what positions it'll affect. But you know, just general criticism from from the board member, um, you know, uh, just the fact that. At least for um, Mohammed, you know, he he's just uh, it seems to me he's you know, he's just definitely frustrated for the fact that he feels that state lawmakers just don't value the diversity in in the the state and the country. One more thing on this. uh, uh, One of the board members, Kurtzy Sweat, um, says here's the here's the quote. If you're going to be the flagship district in the state, then there are going to be hard things you're going to have to uh, do sometimes, and you're going to be the odd man out in some of these conversations. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It probably did, She probably didn't say how far <laughs> the board was willing to go to buck the legislature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. She definitely did not go uh, into extreme specifics, but, you know, one of the things she mentioned at the time um, and, you know, again, wasn't entirely specific about it, but so I'm, I'm not sure – um, you know, exactly what the situation was, but she had mentioned previously that, um, you know, and I've spoken to some colleagues and it might have to do with the fact that I think Salt Lake City School District has always offered full day kindergarten. And that was not something, I guess, that legislators had really talked about or really um, enforced anything related to that until a few years ago. Uh, again, I'm not too clear on the specifics there, but, you know, using that as an example of, you know, how sometimes the 
um, you know, a district, a district like Salt Lake City School District is going to, you know, um, yeah, like like she said, actually, you know, be the odd man out sometimes in, in these conversations. Salt Lake Tribune education reporter Marco Lee, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And uh, we'll have him uh, give us the, his underplayed story of the week uh, later in the program. Uh, following a break, we're going to be talking with Salt Lake Tribune State Watch reporter Emily Anderson Stern. And uh, the headline is How Utah Republicans Are Trying to Influence an Active Supreme Court Case. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. And we'll have more following this. You're listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio on the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams. And we turn next to Salt Lake Tribune State Watch reporter Emily Anderson Stern. Emily, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tom. This is a very interesting um, story. Uh, the headline is How Utah Republicans Are Trying to Influence an Active Supreme Court Case. Uh, I think we're talking, among other things, we're talking about Representative Carrie Ann Lisenby wants to repeal part of a, a law that that she uh, sponsored last year. Um, so first of all, tell us what, uh, what about this uh, abortion clinic ban that was passed last year. Right, so to understand that, you have to go, go back a little bit farther. Um, in 2020, uh, Utah passed in a, an abortion trigger law that would have nearly entirely um, banned abortion. There's would have been a few exceptions, um, like for the health of the mother, um, if there's a fatal fetal anomaly, or um, in cases of rape or incest. Uh, and so that law was passed with the hope that the U.S. Supreme Court would eventually overturn the constitutional right to an abortion in Roe v. Wade. Um, and as we know, in 2022, they did that. And that law quickly went into effect. Um, but within a few days, Planned Parenthood Association of Utah had filed a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of that law under um, the state constitution. And a judge uh, blocked the trigger ban and later put a temporary injunction on it. And that injunction has stayed in place since then. So abortions continue to happen in Utah. They're legal up to 18 weeks here. Uh, and, you know, lawmakers since then have tried a lot of ways to get that trigger law to go into effect. Um, they have, uh, and, you know, this is just another way of doing that. Um, last year, they passed an abortion clinic ban, um, hoping to stop licensing of all abortion clinics in the state um, to kind of get around the, the block on the trigger law. Uh, Planned Parenthood added that to its lawsuit, and a judge said, yeah, you're essentially just trying to get around the block on the trigger law. It seems like you're unfairly targeting abortion clinics without providing any evidence that um, the care they provide is unsafe. Um, the, the the bill would have, you know, as it en ended licensing of abortion clinics while abortion is still legal, um, it would have moved all abortions to hospitals. Um, and so because that's blocked too, uh, Representative Lisenby is now saying, okay, well, we're going to repeal that so that there's one less piece to the case um, challenging the trigger law. And she hopes that that means that abortion will be banned more quickly in Utah. 
So the the case about the trigger law, that's, I think, uh, to the Utah Supreme Court. Is that where it is? Well, currently, the Utah Supreme Court is weighing whether the injunction that's been on been on um, the law for the last couple of years, whether that should stay in place um, or whether while courts are deciding if the law is legal or not, um, abortion should stop happening in Utah. Uh, so it's the, the injunction that's at the Supreme Court, whether to keep right, that or not. Right. I, I see. Yeah. Although they could, you know, in their decision, they could touch a little bit on the constitutionality of abortion um, or the constitutionality of an abortion ban, I should say. Uh, and so we'll see what their decision says. But what well, the question in front of them is around the injunction. And then the case would likely head back down to a district court. So Representative Lizenby is hoping by repealing her abortion clinic ban that simplifies the uh, the question before the Supreme Court? Right, right. She's hoping that, you know, if as they potentially send it back down to district court, you know, district court would have to answer, um, would have to look into um, also whether the uh, abortion clinic ban is constitutional. And so... She's that there would be a number, there would be more questions and take it would take more time for the case to make its way through the courts um, with with the clinic ban in place. And so she's hoping to removing the clinic ban, remove one question that the courts have to answer and having a quicker resolution to the case. Uh, in in your story, Emily, you uh, you, you you set the picture uh, currently uh, uh, which abortions are legal now and then. And then what uh, would be the case uh, if the trigger law were to go into effect? I wonder if you give us some specifics there. Yeah, so abortion is currently legal up to 18 weeks in Utah. There are some exceptions after those 18 weeks, like for um, the health of the mother um, or if there is a fatal fetal anomaly. So if, you know, say the fetus um, likely wouldn't survive outside of the womb or wouldn't survive very long outside of the womb. Um but if the trigger law were to go into place, abortions would not be allowed at any time during a pregnancy in Utah. Um, there would just be some exceptions, some of the same exceptions after those 18 weeks when the pregnancy endangers the life of the mother or, you know, quoting from the enjoined law here, um, or if it risks, quote, substantial impairment of a major bodily function. Um, also, when the fetus has a fetal anomaly, and there are there would be exceptions for when someone becomes pregnant as a result of rape or incest, but under uh, laws passed two laws passed last year, uh, those instances would be limited to eighteen weeks. So if someone becomes pregnant after being um, raped or as a result of incest, they would only have eighteen weeks to abort that fetus. Um, so what are people uh, saying? There, a lot of people are commenting on this, uh, you know, this, this latest um, proposed uh, bill, which would which would essentially repeal Representative Lizenby's uh, bill from last year. Yeah, it's interesting because some of the votes among um, Democrats, which, you know, they across the board oppose an abortion ban. They, they've come down on both sides when it comes to voting on this. Um, some have voted for it because they never supported an abortion clinic ban. And so they would like that off the books, but others have voted against it because they see um, Lizenby's, I guess, motivation here. 
Mm -hmm. uh, Representative Brian King from Salt Lake City, um, he questioned whether repealing the law um, to try to influence the outcome of an ongoing lawsuit kind of upends the judicial branch's independence. Um, he said that it violates separation of powers principles for the legislature to continually try to meddle in this case. Um, in the meantime, I think uh, Representative King has proposed a separate uh, bill, abortion revisions. What would that do? Right. And this was actually a point of criticism for his com um on his comments from GOP colleagues, they, because they said, because his bill would also repeal the abortion clinic ban. Um, so they called his comments disingenuous, but his bill goes beyond that. Um, it, it, it also removes other barriers to um, people accessing abortion. And so that includes a 70, 72 hour waiting period that people currently have to go through for an abortion. So, you know, they, they would initially go and visit, um, an abortion clinic, and then they'd have to wait three days before they could have an abortion. Um, and then it also changes the information that's included in a required abortion education model that people have to go through before getting an abortion. Um, currently, it's a long list. There's a long list of things that are included in that um, education abortion model, including uh, the state requires the module to tell people that the state prefers childbirth over abortion. And uh, he would take that out. Um, and the only remaining part would be that it includes, quote, scientifically accurate, comprehensible, and presented in a truthful, non-misleading matter. Um, that information that falls in line with, with that uh, description. So, Emily, in your story, you, uh, you recount some research, I think, that was done following passage of... Uh of the previous abortion click uh, ban, um, researchers called hospitals. And, and again, uh, if abortion clinics are shut down, abortions would then take place in hospitals, right? Uh, what did what did these researchers find? They found that staff at a lot of Utah's hospitals really were not prepared to handle those kinds of questions. Um, there was one large hospital chain where, you know, they developed a process um, people who answered the phones knew who to direct people asking those questions to or how to answer their questions. But at a lot of hospitals in the state, staff were pretty confused that they were getting these questions. And um, some people even told the the callers that abortion was illegal, which is not true. Um, and so, you know, essentially what these researchers concluded was that the hospitals are not prepared to take on abortion um a lot of people you know abortion something that maybe people who've not been in that situation don't under, under who've not been pregnant don't understand but abortion goes beyond just uh elect there are more purposes than just elective purposes um you know sometimes um like i like i mentioned when people need it for health reasons or when um the fetus may not survive outside the womb. Um, it may not be safe for people to continue with a pregnancy. Uh, and so, and oftentimes, you know, if, if a person's life is not immediately threatened, hospitals will refer women to abortion clinics. Um, and so that the uh, study, 
this is part of why they looked into it, right? Because they they would beyond just elective abortions, um, there would be a lot more women staying in hospitals to get to get that kind of treatment if the law went into effect. Uh, I guess finally on this story, uh, Emily, uh, what's Planned Parenthood saying? They're they're the ones who sought the injunctions on these. They're you know moving on that side of the the issue. What are they saying? Um, so Planned Parenthood's uh, Association of Utah's Chief Corporate Affairs Officer, Shringormani, she spoke at a committee hearing on the bill, um, and she expressed frustration that the state just keeps changing its laws um, back and forth to try to get a desired outcome. Um, she said people who seek abortions, quote, deserve to live in a state that doesn't have constant chaos around this issue. The cycle of writing and repealing laws only feeds the uncertainty that these patients face and makes us a more dangerous state for people who are trying to have families. Mm. Um, again, you know, kind of that confusion that hospital staff members had, some not even knowing if abortion was legal, um, Planned Parenthood is essentially saying, well, these laws always changing, the legislature always, um, before the courts decide, you know, making different laws that may or may not go into effect around this issue just creates a lot of confusion for people. And they don't know what care is legal and they don't know what care they can access. Um, and because of that, uh, Planned Parenthood is saying it it becomes dangerous for pregnant people um, to access the care they need. I said finally, but I guess post finally here. Um, the the uh, one other thing that uh, jumped out at me from your story, Emily, was uh, Republicans are pretty frustrated. They they they're saying, "Hey, we as a legislature have the right to set the laws," and and uh, we're pretty frustrated that uh, you know it's not happening. Right. And so the the clinic ban passed last year wasn't and, you know, repealing it this year. Those aren't the only actions legislature uh, legislators have taken to try to get around the block on the injunction. Um, a few months after it was placed on the ban, um, Representative Lizenby and some other Republican colleagues sent cease and desist letters on official House of Representatives letterhead to abortion providers. And they threatened prosecution if abortion providers continued providing abortions. Um, they later, you know, as a bunch of criticism erupted on social media, they said, oh, it was just our opinion. It wasn't a legal document. Like we can't actually prosecute uh, abortion providers, but we think they should be prosecuted. Um, and then in November of 2022, uh, lawmakers voted to submit a somewhat rare amicus brief um, opposing the injunction. Uh, it's not common for the legislature to come together and say, uh, we're going to weigh in on on a Supreme Court case. Um, and then, you know, last year, they also worked to retroactively change court rules as to when a judge can block a law passed by the legislature. Um, and they specifically took aim at the language the district court judge used in blocking the trigger ban. And so that raised another question and was another question that the Utah Supreme Court justices discussed during a hearing um, in August on, on the trigger ban was, okay, without this language, we have to reassess the injunction. We have to um, figure out if it still meets the standards for an injunction in the state. Well, uh, Emily Anderson Stern, uh, State Watch reporter for Salt Lake Tribune, thanks for telling us about this one. Thanks, Tom.
so Emily, we have a couple minutes here in this segment. Um, this published just this morning. Very interesting story, uh, you along with Brian Schott. Uh, the headline is, Utah Governor uh, Cox calls gender-affirming care genital mutilation surgery during a Disagree Better event. And um, this is kind of a, not the first time this sort of thing has happened, right? Uh, first of all, tell us, uh, Governor Cox has this Disagree Better initiative. Right. He's he's the head of the National Governors Association right now. And his big initiative that he's been pushing um, as he sits there is called Disagree Better. Um, he essentially wants people who disagree on political issues to have more civil conversations about those issues um, to reduce some of the um, polarization in the country. Uh, so what, um, I guess this was in response to a uh, question from a, a student, right? A young person? Right. Um, so this was an event at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Um, and a student asked him about uh, legislation that, that he signed um, that last year that prohibits uh, put Gen, uh, prohibits gender-affirming care for transgender youth. Um, and he ended he ended up saying, uh, when I can go ahead and read you, read you his yeah. quote, mm -hmm. the, the explosion that we're seeing in that type of care, something is wrong. No one can explain exactly what's happening out there. I care deeply about these kids. I love these kids. I want these kids to thrive. I want them to be successful. I think there's a better way to do that than having genital mutilation surgeries before they're 18. And that created um, a lot of frustration for members of the transgender community uh, because Governor Cox has, way back in 2016, when 49 people were killed in at, at a gay nightclub in Orlando, um, Governor Cox gave a speech um, expressing compassion for the community. Um, and he, in uh, 2022, vetoed a ban of transgender girls from playing high school sports that align with their gender identity. Um, and he's described himself as an LGBTQ ally. Uh, and so for him to dis describe gender affirming care or um, even, you know, bottom surgeries as genital mutilation is really frustrating for members of the community. They've said, um, as he's said, he's an ally, but then he he describes the care that they need as genital mutilation. According to the story, uh, apparently, according to, to a spokesman, quoted in the story, Governor Cox misunderstood a question, was not happy with his answer, talking specifically about that interchange with that student. And after that exchange, the governor invited the student backstage, respectfully listened. They discussed their differences for about 10 minutes. Uh, so that's what the spokesman uh, uh, said. Uh, I guess he didn't uh, at least publicly take back his uh, his comments. Right. He, he did not reverse what he said about genital mutilation. Um, and another thing that people were pointing out on social media is they're criticizing his comments is, you know, they, people were saying that if he's using this terminology, um, they, they question what he's saying behind closed doors and who he's talking to, who he's listening to. Um, calling gender-affirming care genital mutilation is something that's often used by people who 
have typically been seen as much farther to the right than Governor Cox, um, including, you know, some other Republican governors like Texas Governor Greg Abbott and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, in a case challenging Florida's uh, gender affirming care ban for trans youth, um, a federal judge actually called Ron DeSantis's comments in which he characterized that care as um, genital mutilation. Uh, a federal judge called it, essentially characterized it as misinformation. Well, we reached the end of uh, our time for this segment. Uh, I'll just refer you to the story. You can find it at sltrib.com. Another controversy that erupted in this is uh, the governor said there were there were no young people uh, committing suicide because of this ban, and uh, people are taking issue with that. Uh, I'll refer you to the story on that, sltrib.com. Emily Anderson Stern, thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. Uh, we'll take another break, and then when we come back, we'll be talking with Westside Communities reporter Jose Davila IV. He talked with uh, a Venezuelan family who landed at the Salt Lake City Airport with nowhere to go. They're recounting their journey to him. We'll have that story uh, following break. You're listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. You're listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams. We turn next to Salt Lake Tribune Westside Communities reporter Jose Davila IV. Uh, Jose, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tom. Uh, so you're uh, new to the Tribune, new to our listening audience. Uh, before we jump into this uh, very interesting uh, story uh, about the uh, Venezuelan migrants, um, tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, I'm new here. I just I just finished my first. Uh, I guess I'm I'm coming up on my first month of being here. Um, it's great to be here. I came from radio actually. Um, I was working for KUNR Public Radio in Reno uh, prior to this, covering education. Um, I'm really happy to be here. I'm I'm really excited about this beat. This this um, Tribune team is is so impressive, and I've you know, admired their work for such a long time. Uh, and then this beat is really interesting too. I, I feel like there's a lot happening on the West side right now, development, infrastructure, um, transportation, and then fun stuff too. We're trying to do some profiles and trying to talk a little bit about food on the West side and, and just bring a deeper understanding um, of the West side to, to our readers and, and cover that community more deeply um, than, than we ever have before. You have kind of an introductory article. You you talk about eating at the Horn of Africa restaurant. Uh, had some uh, Somali dish. Uh, so, yeah, food. Uh, tell tell Jose about your food and any any other story that uh, uh, pertains to the West Side. Uh, that does sound like a, a fun beat. Um, and so, welcome. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's it's great to do a little radio too. Yeah, yeah, get back into radio. That's great. Uh, so the headline here: Nine Venezuelan family members landed at the Salt Lake City Airport with nowhere to go. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about this, um, uh, I guess, beginning with their journey before they even got to the U S yeah. So, so this family, um, like many Venezuelan families, uh, really had been struggling to put food on the table to, um, find the necessary goods they needed to, to take care of each other, um, and, and their kids. And so they left Venezuela. Um, in September, um, we talked to 
uh, Giuliani Escudero and uh, Eduardo Marchena. Um, uh, they're they're married, and um, they really recalled a journey um, marked with with all kinds of of danger. There was Eduardo was telling me as they were walking um, through the the jungles of Colombia um, and Panama in, in Southern Central America. Um, they had to be on the lookout for jaguars and, and they were worried about culebras and, and snakes. Those were snakes. Um, and, uh, trying to avoid, avoid the snakes. And, and so, so that was one part of this journey. The whole other part was they were called getting extorted, um, along, along the, the Camino, the walk, um, because, uh, by various officials, police, um, that sort of thing, uh, basically threatening them with, with deportation. Um, uh, this was mostly in Guatemala and Mexico. Um, if they didn't, you know, give them some valuables or the little cash they had. Um, so, so the journey to even get to Piedras Negras, which is a Mexican border town, uh, just across the river from Eagle Pass, Texas, uh, was fraught and, and they didn't actually um, get to the border and cross the border until mid-December. Mm. So then they, they crossed the river. Uh, they've applied for asylum, right? Um, and uh, here again, they, they, this is representative of the larger picture. Um, the Texas government, under uh, Republican Governor Greg Abbott, uh, he has an initiative where he uh, sends migrants to other states. And so they were, I think they had uh, three options where to go. They chose New York. Yeah, exactly right. So yes, they um, are seeking asylum, um, which means basically as that process gets underway and, and continues, they are legally in the country. Um, however, that doesn't mean they're necessarily uh, cared for. Um, they didn't have any family here, uh, which which complicates kind of the living situation and figuring out where to go in this big country that you've never been to before. Um, and where you don't speak the language. Um, what happened is they, after, after staying in a detention center for about four days um, after crossing the border and being picked up by Border Patrol, they, um, they were released um, after some, some processing, some paperwork. Uh, they kind of, they stayed in a shelter in San Antonio. They left the shelter because they didn't feel it was a safe place. And then they were sleeping on the streets for a little while um, before they accepted a bus ticket. Um, and, and they said it was from uh, the Texas government. We, we couldn't confirm that. The, the Texas Division of Emergency Management did not reply to our request for comment, but um, that's what they said. And um, they, they, they told us they were given three options, uh, Chicago, New York, uh, or Denver. And they had a friend that they had made along their journey who had arrived, who ended up arriving at the border about a month before they did, um, who then had, had gone on to New York. Um, and so that friend recommended that they, uh, take the bus ticket to New York in hopes that there was some level of service and help, um, available for them there. And then here's a, we've heard about uh, the, the stories like this. Uh, here's a twist. Uh, they say that they got a call from a social worker uh, who said, hey, we got plane tickets for you to Salt Lake City. Wait, uh, do we know where those tickets came from? 
So we don't know where those tickets came from. Um, neither did they, but we can piece some of the we can piece some of the story together. Um, they were staying uh, at a shelter in New York City, um, and those shelters have been uh, extremely crowded uh, of late, um, and most of them are. There's many of them are run by the city, uh, or at least the city of New York uh, processes migrants and then, and then puts them in beds where they can find them. Uh, earlier this fall, New York city moved to, to put some limits on stays in those shelters. Um, so for example, uh, Giuliani told us that they had been staying in the shelter for about 30 days. And basically every couple of days they were checking in with a social worker Um in hopes of, you know, trying to figure out what the best next steps for the family were. Um, and so we believe that was a city run program. And, and we know since October, um, the city of New York has been paying for uh, migrants plane tickets or bus tickets to anywhere else in the country or outside the country, um, instead of basically paying to, to shelter them uh, any longer. Mm. Uh, and so that that's, that's, our guests um we put that in the story um we tried we reached out to the mayor's office um the eric adams administration uh we did not hear back from them they uh and so we don't know for sure um it's not ice there was some talk early on in our in the reporting process of this story that uh it could have been ice that paid for their tickets to salt lake city um ICE did get back to us, said it wasn't us. Basically, ICE only handles um, the transportation of people that are in the country illegally, um, who have missed hearings, who um, have committed crimes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, so it, it wasn't ICE. It basically could have then we think it could have been the city of New York uh, or uh, it could have been a different, you know, a nonprofit organization of some sort. But um signs and, and our understanding of, of the shelter system in New York and, and where they were staying uh, and the process by which they had been interacting with social workers uh, leads us to believe it was the city of New York. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we only have about a minute left for this segment, but uh, so they land in the Salt Lake City Airport, uh, don't really know where to go. They, they, they did connect to services, I guess. They did, basically by asking somebody else at the airport, you know, where, where should we go? Um, Eduardo said, Eduardo told us basically, I just thought there would be somebody waiting for us here. Uh, I thought we, we would just be shuttled off to a shelter. Um, and that was not the case. Mm-hmm. Salt Lake City does not have a program like that in place. Uh, Ask somebody, get on tracks and head down to the, to a, a cold blue shelter that night. And yeah. That's where they got help. And in your story, there's criticism of that, that we should have uh, some, some, uh, things in place. Uh, so finally, just 30 seconds. Um, how are they doing now? Um, they are set up right now in a little bit more stable housing through Family Promise, uh, which is a private nonprofit um, that sets up beds and rooms in, in churches uh, across Salt Lake Valley. Um, so they've got a kind of a temporary, more stable place at the moment. Uh, the two kids that are school aged are, are in school. Um, they got into school on Tuesday after landing on Saturday night, um, which was which is great. I think that I think everybody's really happy about that. Um, and so those are two, two big exciting things. And then Eduardo and, and, and all the other adults were, 
really want to work. And, and so that's the next step in their process. They have a they have some meetings going on soon uh, in pursuit of getting work authorization. All right. Westside Communities reporter Jose Davila, the fourth. Uh, thank you for telling us about this. Thanks for having me, Tom. Uh, let's turn to our underplayed stories of the week. We uh, just have a couple minutes for this. So we'll have to be brief. But uh, Michael Lee, what's your underplayed story of the week? Yeah, so my uh, underplayed story of the week actually is a little uh, about Bad Bunny starting his tour here in Utah. Um, I think it's pretty great. Uh, I, every A lot of people always ask me, like, oh, you know, what's it like living in Salt Lake City? You know, uh, you know, might not it must not be, you know, extremely diverse. And obviously, while it's not as diverse as, as other cities, for sure. But I think, you know, having Bad Bunny start his tour in Salt Lake due to the fact that he has a growing Latino fan base here. You know, I think that definitely, you know, is something that um, it, it's it's very telling, if that makes sense. You know, it, it's it shows that the, you know, the city is growing in its diversity as well. So it's just a fun little tidbit, fun little story. Yeah. All right, yeah, uh, sltrib.com for that one. Emily Anderson-Stern, what's your underplayed story of the week? Um, some of your listeners up in Cache County may have heard heard uh, this story, but uh, Jacob Scholl's coverage of uh, a, an election official in Cache County being charged um, with a third-degree felony for willful neglect um, of duty or corrupt conduct by a poll worker. Um, and, you know, this week... Uh, Republican Representative Jordan Tusher uh, introduced a bill to create an Office of Election Crimes and Security. Um, so it's obviously something that state is keeping an eye on, and it'll be interesting to see how they deal with it in the future. All right. Shout out to Jacob Scholl, who reports for UPR and Salt Lake Tribune. Uh, find that at sltrib.com. Jose Davila the fourth. what's uh, the what's, uh, story that you'd highlight? Hey, yeah, I really thought uh, Shannon Solit's coverage of Stewart Healthcare um, and its its debts after kind of selling uh, its its five Utah hospitals last year was was really interesting. I know it took her a lot of time to dig into uh, three lawsuits that that are uh, alleging that basically the healthcare system didn't pay uh, various investors, uh, including doctors who who worked at the hospitals. Uh, including small business owners who help provide services at the hospitals. Um, it, I know it was so complicated to unravel, uh, but I thought she made it uh, really easy to understand. And, and it's an important story. It's just it, it's interesting to, to learn how these big for-profit hospital chains can sometimes, uh, you know, put care in question when, when there's money to be made. So I thought that was uh, really interesting and a real good deep dive uh, into into the hospital system. All right, find that as well at uh, sltrib.com. We've been talking with education reporter Michael Lee, State Watch reporter Emily Anderson Stern, Westside Communities reporter Jose Davila the Fourth. You've been listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. Hope you join us again next time. <laughs>